Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Ocean Riders podcast. Conversations with entrepreneurs, creatives, thinkers, and dreamers who also happen to be surfers. My name's Imi Barno, and I am your host. Today, I got to sit down for a chat with Renee LeBay. I'm so glad we finally made this interview happen because Renee and I have been chasing each other for the past months. Renee is originally from Canada, but now operates both her businesses out of her new hometown in sunny California. Renee is a design forecaster. In fact, before I had this conversation, I didn't even know this job existed. So for the past 20 years, she's been bobbing all around the world, defining and influencing fashion, automotive, architecture and interior design brands into what the next big trend is going to be. It's a really fascinating job and you'll find out more about it in this episode. Renee is also the founder of a new uber cool 100% plant-based and ocean-friendly cosmetics brand, Le Bay. So you may have spotted her glorious black bottles on Instagram and around the web. My chat with Renee is a fascinating conversation because we get to find out what happens behind the scenes before the magazines and the reporters pick new trends up. We talk about how trend forecasting works and why you need an artsy and an analytical brain. And I also pick Renee's brains on the architectural trends that are going to be the next big thing in the years to come. So if you're building or thinking about building something, this could be useful information. I also apologise in advance if it gets a bit nerdy, but I've been infused with architecture ever since I was little. Renee's story also is a story of transformation through the ocean. And this is what I really love about doing this podcast. And I absolutely love these stories. A few years ago, Renee decided to step down from her highly demanding 70 hour a week job and found solace in the ocean. In a fluky way, she discovered the therapeutical effects of the ocean one thing led to another and she got hooked on surfing and created a very soothing, organic and 100% natural après surf oil to apply directly on salty skin. This was the foundation of her stylish cosmetics brand, Le Bay, which is now based in sunny Venice Beach, California. Renee's story is also a really interesting one, not only for the transformational journey that began when she fell in love with the ocean, but also because of the fascinating things we learn about trendsetting. So without further ado, please welcome Renee LeBay. Hello, Renee, and welcome to the Ocean Riders podcast. How are you today? I'm great, Emmy. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. It's just lovely to have you on the show because we've been chasing each other for about the past six months and I'm just so delighted that you could come today and join me for a chat. I guess before we start, do you think you could introduce yourself to the listeners? My name is Renee LeBay and my brand is called LeBay, same name, and we make a plant-based surf oil for ocean lovers. Lovely. Maybe before we sort of go into the sort of details of your career, you could sort of give us a bit of background history, like where you were born and what kind of family you grew up in. I am Canadian and I was born in a small mining town in northern Canada, about 13 hours north of the American border. If you were driving, it would be 13 hours. So pretty far, pretty cold, not a lot of summer. <laughs> Definitely no surfing. My mother and father are, were entrepreneurs at the time. They're retired now, but they had a few businesses in our small town and ran them pretty much exclusively, the two of them by themselves, with not a lot of help. 
Did you go to college in Canada or did you go to college at all? I went to college in a place called Winnipeg, Manitoba, took a fashion design degree. And I was there for about four years before I moved to Toronto and started working with a company that was actually based in Paris. It was very serendipitous how the whole thing came about, but that's basically where I got my start. Pretty soon out of college, I sort of accidentally headhunted by a company in Toronto that had a contract with a Parisian-based trend forecasting firm. And at the time, being a fashion design student, I had heard of design forecasting, but our school didn't have the budget for things like that. So it was a little bit of a fashion legend <laughs> to me. And then when I got connected to this company, I ended up meeting the director. And you know, I was in my early 20s and, and it's fresh out of school you know, and relatively fresh out of the North and definitely did not have a lot of culture in my life or feel like I was worldly in any way. And this director from New York came to Toronto and we met and she looked at my resume and she said, you're a trend forecaster. You just don't know it yet. Wow. And so this is really exciting. So could you sort of tell us what a trend forecaster is? Because it sounds so exciting. Yeah, it's actually a really exciting role overall. But I think, you know, either most people haven't heard of it or the people who have heard of it have the wrong impression of it. So the proper way of trend forecasting is looking at what's going on in the economy, in culture, in consumer behavior, in shifts in technology, in politics, all of the various things that affect us, you know, on a cultural level. And trying to understand how those, you know, what's happening now and what is about to happen or what's coming next will impact consumer behavior. And once you get an understanding of how that consumer behavior should shift or will shift long-term, the trend forecaster's role is to help companies who design products that have to be sold to customers design them in ways that resonate to the point of purchase. So mm. as consumers, we're feeling extremely fearful and scared. You know, for example, if we, you know, we all remember going through the Great Recession 10 years ago, and that was a time when people were really fearful and they didn't want to spend their money. And if they did, they were really nervous and thoughtful about exactly what they were spending and, you know, the quality of the item that they were purchasing. And, you know, a lot of frivolous buys went away mm. at that time. People bought very timeless, basic products. And so as a forecaster, you have to be able to sit with a company and explain to them the design cues that will help that consumer feel like this is a timeless purchase, a durable purchase, a sturdy purchase, a safe purchase. You know, and likewise, if you're in the opposite type of economy, if it's, you know, the 80s and everybody's got a lot of money to spend and, and everything's thriving, the design cues are a lot different. You know, your color palettes are going to be different. Your materials, your embellishments are going to be a lot more involved than they are at a time when the economy is not doing well. So it's little things like that, but on a very detailed level. Does that make you have to sort of anticipate a crisis or... I mean, can you get that precise in forecasting? Well, sometimes, yes. I guess it depends. You know, there's always the crisis that you never see coming. 
And then there's some crises that you, you know, like the environment. That's not something that anybody should be shocked about mm. the state of our environment right now. So those types of things, yeah, of course, you can see those coming in others. You know, 9-11 were not things that you can see coming. Obviously. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. But I think that, you know, there is, especially in the fashion industry, there's sort of a misconception about what forecasting is and a lot of times people say, oh, red's the next big color or something like that. And, you know, sometimes that's simply trend reporting mm. where, you know, sometimes the editor or the writer making those statements, you know, has been to a trade show and they've seen that the common theme throughout the trade show, which is all finished goods, is a lot of red. So mm. it's not really a forecast. It's more of a report back about what's already happening, but it hasn't hit the consumer level yet. So you're actually before that, those trade shows where you see red everywhere or pink everywhere or green everywhere, you're actually in the forefront advising the companies to choose the colour red before it actually comes out. Yes, before they start designing for their season. So I don't do it for fashion anymore. Mm -hmm. But, you know, fashion has varying cycles. Some companies, you know, are fast fashion and they produce very quickly in a few weeks or a few months and others take a year. The active sport industry sometimes takes up to a year and a half to two years for a product. Architecture is, of course, longer. Automotives is a lot longer. It just depends on the lead time of the product. So if you're doing a forecast and the lead time of the product from design to the moment that it can hit the market is three and a half years, you can't give them a consumer forecast for next year. You have to be able to look at at least four years ahead. That's so exciting because it's perspective kind of you're forecasting the yeah the consumer behaviors and all sorts that's really fascinating and how do you actually keep up with these trends I mean do you have to be like on constant surveillance of anything going on I mean what do you look out for I mean I definitely feel at times that there's too much to keep up with and definitely I mean I've been doing it for 20 years so 20 years ago the pace was not as fast because the internet was just kind of launching. And now I think social media has picked up the pace of the rate of adoption of consumers. And so trends cycle more quickly and that makes it harder to keep up with. And I think also the fact that there are so many new voices in design and so many voices that impact that also makes it harder to keep up with. You know, 20 years ago, there was a handful of voices in fashion that sort of kind of made a claim over what fashion would be for the next year or few years. And, you know, now there's just so many different platforms for individuals to have voices that add influence to what people are interested in. So in that sense, yes, it's definitely harder to keep up with, but I I'm so niche now. I primarily do architecture with a little bit of automotive work. And that's a more precise area. So I think if I was still doing fashion, I would, I don't know, be on some serious drugs. <laughs> so that would be too hard for me to keep up with anymore. But um, the architectural world was my first passion. Because when I was growing up as a kid, I think just before I was born, my father bought 50 acres of land and a bulldozer and a dump truck. And he started building roads on this property of land that was on a lake or on a river and built a fishing lodge. 
and then built our house and built, you know, all the roads and then a campground and docks and a well and a septic system and then more cottages. And he built a fiberglass boat. And, you know, I just watched my dad create a vision. And, you know, I was one of those kids that was, you know, I didn't really have a lot of TV and I didn't really have a ton of toys, but I was always kind of watching my dad build something and, and there would always be scraps of wood or something laying around and he'd say, here, play with these. And I would take all of these little blocks and turn them into a house or a little city or some sort of landscaped area. And I became very interested in building and architecture. And so that was really my first love and ended up going into fashion design sort of as a second choice. And I think throughout my forecasting career, any time that a project came through the companies that I worked for that was interior design or architecture related, I jumped at the chance to be involved with it and just slowly made my way back towards that light. And I worked for the French-based company for 10 years and they primarily did fashion. And then I left that company. And for three years, I worked as the senior vice president of global trends at a company called StyleSite. And they had more of a mixture of clients that were fashion and interiors and automotives and active sports and cosmetics. And so I had a really great exposure to forecasting for all different types of companies and clients that needed to take the same cultural shifts and interpret them in different ways for different products. And luckily, there was an interiors and architecture section to that company that I got to really be hands-on with. And then after about three years of working with them and you know working about 70 hours a week, I just got to a moment where I wasn't happy. <laughs> and I still loved what I did, but I didn't feel like at the pace we could properly devote ourselves to our clients' needs. You know, I got to a point where I wasn't entirely certain that we were thorough in our forecasts with the customers. And that for me was when I knew that I needed to step away, that it wasn't resonating with me anymore. Mm -hmm. And I started my own company I guess of now about seven years ago called Broadside Studios. And so the focus of Broadside was to do design forecasting, but for the architecture and interiors industry exclusively, you know, yes, because it was my love and yes, because I wanted a quieter vision of my career where it wasn't such a manic pace all the time, but also because I was, you know, kind of watching what was going on in the forecasting industry in general and how the various forecasting firms at the time that were out there were trying to address the architectural realm. And I just didn't feel like they were really resonating with architects or builders or developers. And so I took the opportunity to kind of leap with both feet and see if I could do that and resonate with All the architectural right. world which is a completely different space. Yeah. And what kind of competences do you need to succeed in forecasting for architecture? You know, just forecasting, because I guess you need to be able to analyze and you need to also be able to have that kind of creative streak. How do you sort of balance that? Yeah, it's definitely a right brain, left brain 
type of work. It's funny because that first woman that I mentioned earlier said, you're a forecaster, you just don't know it yet. And she changed my life with that. And I feel like for the first five years of that role, I was terrible as a <laughs> forecaster. But I survived by you know, absorbing everything that she said and regurgitating it back to our clients. And you know, I was a sponge for the information. And at some point, it all clicked. And I started to be able to get it and see it. And then the second company that I got hired at, the CEO at the time said, you're right brain, left brain. And that's exactly the type of person that we need here because you need to have a business mind. You have to understand what the end goal of each customer is. Mm. But you need to be able to sit in the same room with the CFO and the CMO and the head designer and make all of them come away with one voice. Yeah. And normally, and as you know, in companies, that's they don't always have the same voice, <laughs> yes. you know. So the alignment of those departments, you end up kind of being a liaison between all of them. So I definitely feel like in the architectural world, what I love about being here is that and doing forecasting for this environment is that. The language of business is very straightforward. I think in fashion, you can get away with a little bit more artistic speak and more nuance and ambiguousness. And with architecture, you know, it's really, hey, what's the elevation of this house all about? What's the new shifts in roofing and cladding? You know, is there a trend with the front door porch area that we need to know about? If so, what is it? And it's very straightforward. So, you know, when we have those conversations and I get to say, well, this is why we see this happening, you know, here's what's happening, but here's why we see it happening. Giving them, you know, what to do is important, but why to do it, you know, mm -hmm. the catalysts behind why we see it being important is a big thing for companies because it gives them the ability to suddenly plan their use of that information. If you yeah. just say, well, red's going to be big. Okay, well, what does that mean? Does it mean I do it right now? Does it mean I'm too late? Have I, am I not in the stores yet with that red sweater? <laughs> you know, and when do I stop producing red? It doesn't give you any information. But if you give them more context to here's the why we see it resonating with consumers in this way, here's the catalysts for it. Now they suddenly understand how it resonates to their business. Mm. And so what kind of trends are you seeing, are you actually sort of noticing in architecture in particular? Well, one of the ones that I've been talking about for a while that I think is still a really beautiful trend is one about an architectural style I like to call gabled moderns. It's basically the silhouette of a house that you would draw if you were a little kid. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the box with the pitched roof on top. It's a very simple style of home. And the silhouette is very simple. And if you think of, let's say, you know, United States architecture, a lot of homes, you know, have what we call a very detailed elevation or a cut up roof line where there's multiple pitches and gables mm -hmm. to each piece of the roof. And there's this sort of, you know, we get criticized in the U.S. a lot for McMansions, these homes that have a lot of sort of curb appeal that sort of shows off, you know, how wealthy the person must be who lives there because there's so much going on on the front of the house. And that definitely used to be 
a big thing. But the gabled modern is sort of the antithesis of that. It's a very simple silhouette. You know, the roof line barely hangs over the exterior walls to the point that the entire, you know, the exterior walls and the roof almost look like a single form. You know, the eaves don't overhang at all. Minimalist kind of design. Exactly. Very minimalist, very austere. A lot of times it's one material for the entire silhouette of the house, including the roof and often in the same color. And when I started forecasting this, you know, there weren't really any in my neighborhood or region that I could speak of. And now I could drive to 10 or 15 in, in five minutes. But I think what's interesting about it is how it does really resonate with the shift in consumer mindset. You know, I don't think that the new consumer cares that much about show off appeal of the front of their home to neighbors or what have you. I think that they more care about the nonchalantness of the exterior or the quiet nature of it. You know, it's very simplified and it's less about bragging rights and more about (laughs) just living, you know, and I think that that's a shift in consumer culture that we definitely see, you know, we don't see it across all of consumerism, but we see it resonating in fashion and automotives and architecture as well. And I think the gabled modern is a big part of that. And after the gabled modern, for me, the next trend that I like to talk about a lot is one I call entanglement, which I look at it as an extension of what biophilic design is right now. So biophilic is a term that basically describes designing more nature into your environment or more natural aspects into your environment. So in homes right now, it's usually addressed by maybe having a wood ceiling in the interior or a wood feature wall somewhere in the home or larger Mm -hmm. windows so you have more natural light or all of the windows that fold back from the living room onto the deck and you have this sort of seamless indoor-outdoor living flow. And for me, entanglement is the extension of that where I feel like we're seeing more design cues and style cues where the built and the natural environments almost look like they're literally growing together. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like our built environments are becoming more entwined to look more like nature. Yeah. And for me, that's a really important trend. That's really interesting because actually the last house we had was a bit like that, where we had created a sort of tree house effect. We had this huge eucalyptus tree in the middle of the plot of land and we decided to build around it. So the whole house wrapped around this eucalyptus tree and grew through the terrace on the first floor, on the second floor, if you're American. And so we had this beautiful (laughs) tree trunks coming through the house and coming through the visual of the house. And that was really, really exciting. And it also makes the place so much nicer to live in, so much warmer, so much more organic and I guess yeah I guess that's a trend that's coming along quite quite fast how did you leave it (laughs) how did you ever manage to leave that beautiful home that sounds fantastic we left it to go and live in Bali so that was even kind of more amazing and I don't know if you've heard of green school in Bali no but um it's uh it's a school that's been designed by Elora Hardy she used to work for Donna Karan and she makes these amazing designs in bamboo but these giant bamboos like the trunks are like the size of a fireman's pole and she can make five six-story houses with them and they're so organic 
the buildings, they just live in nature and they breathe nature and they're all open spaced and open to the air and all the furniture inside is actually integrated. So I'll send you the link because it's really, really exciting. Oh, that sounds beautiful. Yeah, she's an amazing designer. And so she designed the school in the jungle made of bamboo, so all sustainable and upcycled materials. The wind, the skylights were windscreens from old cars and things like that. So they're really sort of working on how to use existing materials without deteriorating the nature. And bamboo, obviously, is one of the sort of most sustainable building materials as well. So it's very, mm-hmm. very exciting way. I definitely, you know, when I speak of entanglement, it's really for the residential, the single family residential home where this is something that we see coming more and more. So, you know, it affects how hardscapes and softscapes work together. It it affects the interiors of the home as well, the materials chosen, the color palettes. I think it's a really interesting time in architecture. I feel like it's a really pivotal moment. For design because to me architects are the new fashion designers <laughs> really yeah because the more we move towards purchasing experiences and spending our money on experiences versus products it's the environments that we choose to spend our time in that really help create the ambiances that resonate with us and that we're looking for and it's really like the language of our time yeah absolutely I guess we could move on to your career change or kind of new project that you've integrated into your career. And I just wanted to know what sort of clicked in your mind in 2012 for you to sort of make a swerve in your path. So back in 2012, I was going through, let's just say a significant shift in my life. And it was a hard time for me and I was going through some real challenges and I mean, it took a long time to go through all of that shift, but early on in those challenging times, (laughs) somebody (laughs) said to me, you know, in order for you to heal, you should go to the ocean. And I completely forgot about it, that that was ever said to me. And then about eight months after that was in the ocean and had gone on a trip to the Virgin Islands and I had spent about a week in the ocean. And prior to that, I had never really spent much time in the ocean. You know, I grew up on a river that was freshwater. I've never felt particularly called to the water in any way. And, you know, was really just on this trip to kind of get away and unwind and got in the ocean every day and really enjoyed it and got it back in the next day and the next day. And At the end of the trip, I remember standing in the water and realizing how good I felt and how I'd probably never felt that good in my entire life. And it wasn't just like a vacation rest good kind of feeling, but it was like a, I'm a different person. My life is on a different course now. And I feel like there's a peace in me that I didn't have before. And... Yeah, it was really magical. And as I was standing there realizing that I was happy, like the real word happy, (laughs) (laughs) I was happy. You know, it's such an elusive thing. And I had it. It was there. And I was suddenly just sort of mesmerized by this feeling. And I heard that person's voice in my head say, in order to heal, you need to go to the ocean. And it just stuck with me. And I came back to L.A. And... 
you know, kept going back to the Virgin Islands until I realized that, you know, I can't afford to keep taking (laughs) vacations. And I happen to live right next to the ocean and I'm not getting in it. And, you know, it was winter time and I wanted to be back in the ocean and realize that if I wanted to connect with the ocean as much as I was craving, I was going to have to get in a wetsuit and experience Los Angeles water temperature in the wintertime. <laughs> so I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to put on a wetsuit, that means I'm going to learn to surf. Brilliant. So, you know, I think I, at the time I Googled somebody's name and I found a surf coach and got in the water and, you know, I'm sure I caught nothing more than whitewash that day, but I caught my first wave and I rode it all the way to the beach and stepped off on the sand as beginners always do. And I turned around and looked at my coach and he said, I know that look, you're addicted. <laughs> and he was right. So <laughs> that's, a little- you know, and that's my, it's my way to stay connected with the ocean is surfing is a, I don't feel like I ever really had a hobby that possessed me yeah. before surfing. I really get it. <laughs> that's amazing well that's the great thing about your podcast is that everybody who's listening probably does get it <laughs> there's not enough words to describe it but you know if you get it you get it and you know what it is yeah absolutely and so did that sort of trigger the creation of Bay in terms of creating a cosmetics brand or did something else happen as well well indirectly it did you know I feel like with just like with the course of my forecasting career, the creation of LeBay, the face oil brand, was serendipitous too. I've been an advocate of clean skin and taking care of your skin my whole life. I've been a little bit of a fanatic about <laughs> anti-aging, or I guess you're not even supposed to say those words anymore, but <laughs> aging well. Or oh, longevity. And <laughs> Yes, longevity is a good word for it. And, you know, even when I was a teenager, that worried me. Mm. (laughs) So I was always very interested in skincare. And I've been using oils for just probably over 10 years now. I gave up creams and lotions a long time ago. You know, they work for some people, they just didn't work for me. And I was a big fan of oils. And a few years ago, shortly after I started surfing, my sister, who still lives in Canada, started to become interested in essential oils and skincare as well. And she really dived into it and learned a lot and would text me every now and then. And when she would uncover a new oil that she was really passionate about, she would text it to me. And this one day she texted me in this like perfect moment as she was texting me, I happened to be at Whole Foods in front of the skincare essential oil section. And I happened to be out of face oil at home. So there she is texting me. So I thought, okay, I'm going to listen to her. I'm going to get a couple of these things. So she said, you know, get this, get that, and add these top notes or whatever scents you want on top. This would be good. She gave me a bunch of stuff that she wanted me to get. And I picked a handful of them and came home and mixed them up and liked the first batch and then mixed a second batch that was a little different. And then, you know, just kept using it. I really liked the mixture that I had tweaked over time. And then 
you know, this one day I happened to be standing in the parking lot at the beach after a surf and, you know, I had just been out with a few other people. And so we're all standing around the parking lot having a chat. And my friend kind of got a little close up to me and took a good look at me. And she said, you know, you have so much salt around the edge of your nose. It looks like maybe you were having a different kind of fun. <laughs> I was like, well, that's absolutely not appropriate because there's, you know, there's children in the parking lot. I can't go to a, <laughs> I, you know, I was supposed to go to a meeting right after this. And I happen to have some of the oil in my car. And so I just quickly grabbed it and put it on my face. And then I was, you know, a couple of minutes later, I'm driving out of the lot and I kept thinking, wait, what's going on here? And I looked in the mirror and I realized that my skin was really hydrated and it was as if I had never been in the ocean in the first place. Really? And so, you know, that salt residue and the dryness and the itchy skin that can sometimes come from, you know, as much as we love salt and I want to spend my whole life salty, you know, it's not always great on your skin afterwards. And so I, you know, took it the next time I surfed and a couple more times and then I thought, okay, well, there's, this is really working for me. I think there's something here. And then I mixed up a couple extra bottles and gave it to some of my surf friends and asked them to try it out. And I got really good feedback minus the scent at the time. Nobody liked the smell. So it went through a few iterations to get the ingredients and the scent to connect because any sort of top notes that you would add to that to the performing ingredients could technically change the performance. Okay. So there was a, about a year and a half of versions, I don't know, one through 20 million. <laughs> but, um, and, you know, luckily all my friends are lovely enough that they just kept putting up with it and kept <laughs> trying it and giving me feedback. And then my forecasting business is still my main business. I launched the website of LeBay Honestly, because I'd had friends who gave it to friends and then I wanted to put it in the right bottle with the right label. And then I eventually just realized that there were people coming to my house who were friends of friends of friends to get the bottle. <laughs> and, and I thought, okay, I probably need a site so that <laughs> it's starting to feel a little weird now that, you know, people I don't really know are coming to my house. So I put the website up really just to handled the traffic and then uh, did not, I guess, naively didn't realize that once you put up a website and an Instagram, you're really a business. <laughs> and there's, you know, a whole other, because, you know, my forecasting business, I've never advertised and I, you know, thankfully I'm always, you know, overbooked. Mm -hmm. So I don't really have that whole online engine to deal with yeah. in my forecasting business. And suddenly with this, I was thrust into an entirely different universe. I bet. I bet. And so, yeah, it's a little like I have two full-time jobs. Right yes, yes. I can, I can understand that. But, yeah. And that's so, brilliant. You know, happy accident. Didn't mean to do it to myself, but <laughs> that's where we are. Do you have to go through a huge kind of validation process to get to a market product that you're going to put on your skin? Because in Europe, it's really complicated. You need to get it approved by official laboratories and all sorts of things like that. Is it the same in the US? It is not the same in the US as Europe is definitely more strict on those things. The US definitely has hoops that you need to jump through mm -hmm. and the FDA 
has some guidelines. I would say that the process was less complicated than I anticipated, but not without complication, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, but you know, it's all there to protect people. So, you know, you have to respect it. I, as a consumer, I certainly want those things in place. So, do you think we could talk about the color black for a second? Because it kind of flows everywhere. <laughs> and I just wondered, wondered if it was a sort of design thingy or if it's a, there's some kind of connection with that color and you and how that resonates into the brand. If my forecasting clients heard you ask that question right now, they would be giggling because, uh. yeah, it's a common joke that <laughs> every time I show up, the only thing I'm going to be wearing is head to toe black. <laughs> I mean, black is my favorite hue. You know, I don't think I intended the LeBay product to, you know, have that much black. I don't think that was the intention on the onset, but, you know, the bottle I chose for the product is a black glass. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with oils, the proper way to store oils is in a tinted glass, which is typically yeah. amber or yeah. blue glass, because it keeps sunlight from directly affecting the oil. And you're supposed to keep even those bottles in a cabinet away from sunshine. So I've always been wary of oils that came in clear glass bottles or things yeah. like that. You know, when it came to packaging it, I was really considering the packaging. And I just felt like the amber and blue glass bottles, you know, were everywhere. And while I was resigned to working with them, if I had to, I ended up stumbling across this company that makes black glass bottles. And it just so happened that the technology that goes into designing those particular bottles protects the, the contents from all harmful UV light, which was important for me because this is a product that as a surfer or anybody who's an ocean lover, it's likely at some point in time, you're going to have it at the beach. Mm. So the fact that it's a double black glass, that it prevents the UV rays from breaking down the oil was really important to me. I wanted the bottle to have as much performance as the ingredients itself. Well, that's fascinating. Oh, and it's beautiful. And it really yeah. is very beautiful, very stylish. And, Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Thank I you. love it. I love it. So it just sort of happened that the bottle became black and that I happened to be obsessed with black (laughs) color anyways. So it was another happy accident if I can overuse that. And and then, you know, I just really loved as I was beginning to put the visuals together for social media, I really loved the addition of black in a beach palette. Mm, Yeah. You know, with the turquoise and blues and sand and, you know, all of the different colors that we know that we always associate with the beach and palm trees and that sort of coastal living and adding a little touch of a chic black. I thought just really uh, that palette resonates with me personally. So I just felt like (laughs) that was the right way to go. Oh, it's lovely. No, really, truly beautiful line of products. So you've just got the one oil for the moment. Are you thinking about developing anything else? Yes, I am working on a few different products that have come in as requests. It's actually been great because in connecting with other surfers over the oil, they really do begin to share their skin care desires. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's not just women, it's men as well. So that I'm really happy that I'm able to address both genders. Mm -hmm. And 
I'm getting a lot of feedback when I, you know, engage with somebody for the first time about the oil. They will tell me other things that they always want in their, you know, or the skincare issues that they have as a result of surfing, you know, or dryness issues or mm-hmm. they've become very open and they share a lot. So I have been working on a couple of other ideas. There'll probably be one new introduction to the market in the next few months, but I don't want to have more product just for product's sake. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not looking to create everything. I would like to create products when there's a need and a use and that they can really serve people and the planet in a way that's, you know, mindful and That's another thing I wanted to talk about because there's a really socially responsible mission in your company. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I would love to. I think there's a few. Um, Obviously, you know, I feel like as a company, if you want to pick a charity to give back to, and I think everybody should do that, I think that you should pick the one that hurts your heart. Mm. And for me, the two things, everybody's got something that's different. The things that hurt my heart are anything to do with animal welfare and the ocean. So, you know, those two things are just where I want to be able to donate and to be able to support. So, you know, that's one part of my message, I guess. The other thing for me is I just want people to connect with the ocean and I want to get people to the water and give Mm -hmm. them a chance. Not everybody's going to connect with the ocean. Other people are going to connect with skiing or a mountain climbing or, you know, something that doesn't have anything to do with nature as their way to unwind and find peace. But, you know, when you connect with the ocean, as you know, it's in there and it goes deep into you. And it's, I definitely believe that when you do make that connection, you change as a person. Mm-hmm. And you become, I mean, not everybody, obviously, but often you become a more thoughtful steward to the planet and to all of the animals and people around you. And, you know, it makes me want to take care of everything. The ocean gives me that. But there's a selfish thing to the ocean too, right? It's an indulgence. It's a luxury. But at the same time, what it gives you is so important that it's an essential. And so I kind of, you know, when I created the product, I wanted it to feel like a luxury and an essential too, for that same reason. But I also really believe that when people are given the opportunity or encouraged to go spend time with the ocean and they make that connection, they become, you know, hopefully these stewards of the planet. And the more of those we have in the world cannot be a bad thing. We need more people at this time to really care for what's going on in the world and really be you know, aligned and conscious Mm -hmm. about how we support the planet and support each other and getting back to a healthy place with the planet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That totally resonates with me. And in fact, lots of my guests in the podcast have this uh, environmental approach in the projects that they're presenting. So yeah, you do become a steward of the environment once you start falling in love with the ocean. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. And so I guess we're sort of moving on to the interview and almost wrapping up. And um, I just wondered what your favorite board is at the moment. Oh, (laughs) well, the black one that I keep (laughs) promoting over all of my social media, (laughs) because I do have other boards. I have a small quiver of four and two of them were made by a shaper in I said that correctly because normally I call him my shaper, like I own him. (laughs) But 
a shaper in Venice who's wonderful. His name is Guy Okazaki mm-hmm. and a nine foot blackboard that you see in my social media is a nine foot board that he made. And every time somebody comes up to me in the ocean to make a comment on it, you would think that the first comment is, wow, that's a blackboard. <laughs> but the first comment usually is, wow, look at those rails. <laughs> that's really nice rails on that board. And everybody wants to talk about how it performs. And it's, I would say the thing that I love about it is that I can, obviously it's a long board, so I can walk it, but it turns like a short board. Really? It's got a really easy maneuverability to it. And I'm obsessed with it. And I think that uh, Guy just did such a beautiful job with that. He also made another board for me, a short board that is a nude color. But it turned out beautiful, and I love that board, too. I'm just currently obsessed with the black one. So. Oh, fantastic. I don't take out the other one as much, but they're both <laughs> stunning, and he's fantastic. <laughs> well, we'll put his name in the show notes and a link to his website as well so that <laughs> the listeners can check out his yes, work. Yes, please. <laughs> okay, well, yeah. I guess the last part of the traditional interview on the Ocean Riders podcast is to finish the sentences. So I've just got four sentences or verbs that if you'd like to give me the end of, that would be really good. So the first one is, I love. Well, I love the ocean, but there's so many things. I love the ocean. I love my dog. I love where I live. I love my community. Oh, that's gorgeous. I miss. My family. Oh, that's so sweet. I wish. I wish that I'm unsure of what to answer. I'm just <laughs> trying to figure out the nicest way to say it. I wish that the world was a better place. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Me too. And I want. I want to inspire people to get to the beach and remember to connect with the ocean and fall in love with it. It's beautiful. That's lovely. Well, I guess, Renee, we've made it. We've got to the end of this lovely conversation. It's just, it's been a delight to talk to you. I just wanted for you to tell the listeners how to get hold of you and how to connect with you. So if you want to give us your Instagram handles and website name, that would be really, really cool. Sure. The Instagram and the website are both relatively the same. It's at thelabay.com, which is T-H-E-L-A-B as in boy, B as in boy, E. And the website is the same. It's thelabay.com. Do you ship worldwide or do you ship for the moment in the US? How does that work if we want to order some products? I believe that is a very good question. I believe we ship most places at the moment, not Europe, but Mm -hmm. are working on shipping to Europe. But Canada, the US, Mexico, Australia, New Zealand. I know there's a handful of others on that list that I'm (laughs) forgetting, but Europe soon to come. Well, that's really interesting, Renee. This has been a fascinating conversation. I've learned such a lot. It's been great talking to you. And I guess if you want to come back on the Ocean Riders podcast in a few months time to sort of let us know on some new developments and and new things coming up, you're welcome to. In the meantime, I just wish you the best of luck with your products and your both businesses, which seems very busy at the moment. And um, yeah, welcome to come back whenever you like. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed getting the chance to chat with you. This was (laughs) lovely. Thank you. 
But I've had a lovely time talking to you, Renee. It's been a beautiful conversation and I just wish you all the best for the next few months and and years to come. And uh, thank you for being such an awesome guest. That was a lovely conversation. I really hope you enjoyed it. Today, Renee shares her time between her real job, which is forecasting trends in architecture, interior design and the automotive industry, and developing her cosmetics brand, Le Bay. If you'd like to get your hands on Renee's Apre Surf Oil, you can on thelebay.com. So the Lebay is spelled T-H-E-L-A-B-B-E dot com. And you can also find the Lebay on Instagram at the Lebay. You can find links to all the people and products mentioned in this podcast in the show notes on your phone or in the Medium article that I publish weekly. The Ocean Riders podcast is a passion project and I would like to thank you all for listening to my weekly conversations. It really makes my day to see the number of listeners on the rise. If you'd like to join me for an episode or if you know anybody who would like to share their story, please reach out to me on Instagram at the Ocean Riders podcast or via email at hello at the Ocean Riders If you'd like to support my podcast, you can. First, you can help by uh, telling your friends, your family or any fellow surfers about the podcast. Adding a few stars or a review on Apple Podcasts also helps as well. But ultimately, spreading the word is a really easy way to help. Second, I created a profile on buymeacoffee.com. It's a website a bit like Patreon where I can receive donations. You can connect to my page on buymeacoffee.com slash oceanriders. And for the price of a cuppa, you can help me pay for my editor and hosting fees. Just saying. So links to this fabulous tool are in the show notes. This episode wouldn't have been put together without the help of my newest recruit, Isabella Blanca Palangan, who is a wizard at putting podcasts together and making this episode sound great. You rock, Isabella. And of course, it wouldn't have been possible without the time that my enchanting guest, Renee, took to make this episode. Thank you, Renee. You're welcome back anytime. Guys, thank you for listening. Until next week, take care, have fun and enjoy the waves. Ciao.